You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. And today we're chatting with Greg Baer, Executive Director of the Grable Foundation. Greg manages a grant-making portfolio designed to advance early childhood education, education reform, out-of-school time support, and informal learning. He and the foundation also provide stewardship for the Pittsburgh Remake Learning Network, which is a professional network of educators and innovators working together to shape the future of teaching and learning in the greater Pittsburgh region. Greg's path to this position at the Grable Foundation is an interesting one, but definitely prepared him to be successful in his work. Let's listen in as he shares more with Tom about how an attorney ended up running a foundation focused on education and learning. Greg Bear, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Tom. Greg, I, um, I'm a big fan of what uh, the Grable Foundation and partners have done with uh, the Remake Learning Network in Pittsburgh and really looking forward to our conversation about that. You and I have taken uh, sort of non-traditional pathways to get to the point where we're talking about networks in education and learning ecosystems. How does an attorney come to run a, a foundation? For me, it makes sense. And ideally, it'll make sense to you in a moment. So, it, you know, we all have these um, uh, moments and people in our lives. And for me, the moments and people in my life uh, date back to uh, when I was a student at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. And I volunteered all four years there at the South Bend Center for the Homeless and had been deeply involved at the Center for Social Concerns on the campus of Notre Dame. And, and folks like Father Don McNeil and others were incredible advocates because they were so grounded in social justice and, and public service and uh, really elucidated for me my role, my contributions, what to study, how to think about uh, purpose in my life. and. Volunteering all four years at that center, it's incredible in retrospect that by my fourth year, my senior year, I was the one responsible for developing the uh, support for the kids in the, in the center in their interactions with the South Bend School District. Whether it was one day or you know nine months, I was the one that was the point of connection, the interface between the school district and the kids and their parents or, or caregivers which was nuts in retrospect. Um, no one, um, certainly uh, with my lack of training, should have been uh, doing that except the school district or, or other professionals. But you're, when service is called forth from you, you step forward and do what you can. Right. And it was there that I began to develop interests in civil society, in the nonprofit sector, in public service. So subsequently studied at the Center on Philanthropy at Indiana University with right. Robert Payton. Um, yeah, earned really later, the, really the best uh, best in class center in the country on the topic. Oh, and I couldn't have been with a better person than Robert Payton. Then studied uh, the law of philanthropy and the interface between uh, tax exempt organizations and public policy at Duke University, uh, earning both a JD and an MPP there. And so, I mention all of that to say that it was a, a calling to public service mixed with a lot of. Uh, academic and mentorship support that uh, brought me back to my hometown of Pittsburgh. I, I knew I wanted to come back here to Pittsburgh and initially practiced for a, a couple years at a, a local law firm, Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney. 
and was incredibly well supported there, such that about a quarter of my time was dedicated to representing tax-exempt organizations and clients. And in the course of that work came to represent the Pittsburgh Foundation. They uh, talked to me about the prospect of coming aboard at the Forbes Funds, which is a, a, a local foundation intermediary supporting um, the uh, support of you know, helping nonprofits do what they do and do it better through management assistance, leadership support, research about community needs. And I was there for about five years before the trustees here at the Grable Foundation approached me. And uh, in November of 2006, so 11 years ago, I joined the Grable Foundation. Our focus is here is, is on kids and learning and improving the lives of kids, especially those who don't have the same economic economic opportunities as their peers. Let's, and so, let's come back to that. It, it is, um, this explains a lot, uh, Greg. It, you, you're also on the board of uh, Grant Makers for Education, a group that I was a long-term, long-time board member, and uh, great nonprofit. So the, these are, this is really an area of, of passion and expertise for you, the, scaling the impact of nonprofits. And it is, it is, Tom. And before that, I was on the board for nine years at Grant Makers for Effective Organizations and was board chair for three years. Wow, that's great. So um, that color commentary is really helpful. You, uh, re you're really built for this job. So what what was happening uh, when you started? At, what was happening in Pittsburgh 11 years ago when you started? What was the lay of the land? Well, it was complicated. It was complicated in the city and in the community and for me, and I'll speak to both of those. So it was in 2004 that the Grable Foundation, together with two other local foundations, the Heinz Endowments and the Pittsburgh Foundation, had very publicly suspended their collective funding to the Pittsburgh Public Schools. Right. No, I, I remember um, investigating grant-making opportunities when I was at the, the Gates Foundation, and uh, boy, all of us just ran the other way. So you can imagine there was tension. There was also opportunity. Uh, there was a lot of tumult on the uh, on the board with the board members, and there was subsequent turnover. Right. The mayor got involved. Uh, this is a city where the mayor otherwise has no involvement because the school budget is separate from the cities, and, and the mayor has no role in appointing the superintendent. So the politics were messy at the time. Uh, there had been some new hope with the then appointment of, of uh, Mark Roosevelt as right. the superintendent. And he uh, soon thereafter brought aboard Linda Lane, who many years later succeeded him as superintendent. For me, I came into the setting, I had uh, some knowledge, to be sure, about child policy, youth welfare, public education issues, but no one would have turned to me and said, um, he's anything approaching an expert on these issues. Right. <laughs> so for me, uh, it was a time to be really curious and, and to understand what it is that we could do to be helpful from the context of the Grable Foundation. And for me as a manager, also building upon the management excellence of my predecessor, Susan Brownlee. This was an already excellently functioning organization, and so I had the challenge of how do you build upon that? So you might imagine um, that in those first number of months, certainly the first year and longer, and I hope it's still the case, I spent a lot of time with educators, youth workers, librarians, others in the community saying, what is it that we can do to be helpful? Um, where could we make uh, your life a bit easier as you aim to serve children and youth, particularly disadvantaged kids? And 
that's when I began to hear something that dumbstruck me. I heard people say this, I'm not connecting with kids the way that I used to. Now, on one hand, that seemed totally normal. I'm sure generations of adults have said that. I certainly say that about kids in my neighborhood, like, oh, these kids today. <laughs> but, um, but something was profound in what they said because when they said it, they literally meant my class in 2005 was very different than my class here in 2006. Or these kids in this community center, uh, there seems to be something different about them and I'm not connecting with them. So for me, that you know, starts to prompt the question, why? Simultaneous to that, as I just immersed myself in the literature and the people studying education and learning, for me, it was a time of discovery of the whole field of the learning sciences. And uh, what we were learning about learning itself, the uh, ethnographic research about kids today, and began to appreciate that, in fact, kids today at that time were fundamentally different, driven in large part by technology, not solely, but they were developing identities differently, seeking affirmation differently, pursuing and consuming uh, knowledge differently. And so we began to ask the question, if in fact that's true, and if in fact kids today might be fundamentally different, are we then supporting schools, museums, libraries, educators, et cetera, in ways that are responsive to who we think modern kids are, what their futures might be, and what the learning sciences is telling us about the future of learning? And that was the beginning of the Remake Learning Network. So let's um, let's dive into that. That that suggests, um, if not a common pedagogy, um, at least a few common design principles about learning experiences, right? Well, it it meant that we needed to think differently about what does engaging lo learning look like, what does relevant learning look like, what does equitable learning look like. Now we would say, what does personalized learning look like? We didn't necessarily use all of those words and terms 10 years ago, but it meant that we need to think differently about the pedagogical approaches, the frameworks on everything from classroom design to curricula to professional development to the experiences between uh, in school and out of school, uh, issues of credentialing. It, it, it sort of upended the way that we needed to start to think about things. And the other thing that was happening for me at the time, Tom, was that as I was having these conversations, I was, I was having conversations not only with people whom you'd expect, that is the teachers, the librarians, the teachers, but also was talking with gamers and technologists and roboticists and designers and artists. And what struck me was the same ways in which they were starting to talk about different frameworks for thinking about education and learning. And so was prompted to say, you know, what, what would it be like if we brought together some of these artists and gamers and roboticists together with some of these first grade teachers and, and museum exhibit designers, et cetera. And so that's what we did. You know, one coffee meeting led to a pancake breakfast with about a dozen people. And that pancake breakfast was, um, you know, it was the sort of thing that went on much longer than any of us anticipated, you know, a two and a half hour pancake breakfast. And to a person, everyone said, I can think of two or three people I want to bring into this conversation. So there was a snowball effect of, of people from different disciplines who began to rally around kids and, and learning. And it seems so obvious here in 2017, but that shift in thinking education versus learning at the time then seemed different. 
So, uh, so what happened next? What what's the formation story of uh, remake learning? You know, um, is it an an initiative or is is it a separate C three? No, it, and so this is interesting. So um, it was very unstructured at the beginning. Um, there, when I say it was a pancake breakfast, it was a pancake breakfast that led to a larger pancake breakfast that led, then led to something we called the gong show. There were about 300 people in the, in the basement theater of the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh. And in sort of pachaka cha uh, style, people had three minutes to get up and here's what I'm doing, here's what I'm thinking about. And they, I literally gonged them off the stage with a gong that I had borrowed from the Pittsburgh Symphony. <laughs> so it was just a lot of network building, trying to connect people and ideas, um, encouraging that bumping up against one another in ways that might prompt relationships thinking. Uh, so it didn't begin as initiative, but it, but it, uh, we also pretty quickly here at the Grable Foundation found ourselves in an uncomfortable spot in that we're not an operating foundation. We don't lead initiatives. Right. And so fairly early on, and there were, there were other funders involved early on, the Benetton Foundation, the Buell Foundation, um, Chevron has been deeply involved over the past 10 years. So there are other funders present. And we identified that there were different intermediaries that could play critical roles. Uh, in Pennsylvania, we have intermediate units uh, and our local educational service agencies could play a key role in connecting with teachers, uh, bringing together the what's now known as the Allegheny Partnership for Out-of-School Time, the Out-of-School Time Network bringing in the Pittsburgh Association for the Education of Young Children, our early learning network. There were hubs that were already present in the community whom we could bring into as part of the conversation. And we realized that, that in fact, that in a network, they could be um, important pillars in, in what we then called kids and creativity. It really wasn't, Tom, until 2011, so this is six years ago now, that a local organization called the Sprout Fund Think of the Sprout Fund as a, a, a grassroots, smaller community foundation that came forward and said, we can, there's, there's clearly more than there there here, and we can bring structure to this. We can think about the communications and documentation, the many grants that support a lot of these relationships, the networking activities, whether that be events or meetups or sending delegations of educators and others from Pittsburgh to the Sandbox Summit at MIT or the Digital Media and Learning Conference out in California. They brought structure to what we now call Remake Learning um, in 2011. And, and their leadership over the past six years has been critical. But to this day in 2017, there is no organization, C3, called Remake Learning. It is very much a network. There are multiple intermediaries involved in that network, including uh, grant makers of Western Pennsylvania, our intermediate units, the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh. I mean, I could, Carnegie Mellon University, I, I could go down a list, many of which are supported by the Grable and Foundation others to in turn provide grant support, documentation support, the networking support, the convening support that facilitates this broad network. So. It's not a hub and spoke system. It, it truly is a network. I'd like to say we had a very Michael Porter mindset of saying, oh, we're going to set up an industry cluster and this is going to be a network. I mean, we, in a way, we, we backed ourselves into a network, um, but it very much is a network. And, and that's been both an opportunity and a challenge. Um, 
because it's not linear and it um and there are lots of points of of connection for folks in right. this network there are 250 organizations involved so this sounds uh thoughtful but complicated how would you describe the organizing purpose so this network the Re remake learning 250 organizations the purpose of which is to ignite engaging relevant equitable learning for youth across southwestern pennsylvania and northern west virginia uh, so organizations that are thinking about innovative teaching and learning are often then taking advantage of modern learning frameworks like stem maker steam technology enhanced learning uh, we have all sorts of structured working groups around those very areas that I just described, whereby collections of organizations are coming together. There is, in fact, staffing to support the Remake Learning Network. We have a director of Remake Learning. We have a learning innovation strategist. We have a community outreach manager. So there's, there's staffing. There's financial support for the network generally. Um, there is a, a very active communications and documentation support and, and web support. There's a whole rhythm. So it, we operate organization-like without having an organization per se. Um, it's on one hand complicated and messy as you, and you, as you right. say, but at the other hand, it's, it, there are so many, I, I like to say there's so many different front doors for people to walk into. If, if you're the Carnegie Science Center of Pittsburgh and, and STEM is what you do better than anyone, it's obvious for you to participate in the STEM working group right. and the STEM activities. But if Maker is what brings you into thinking about the future of learning, there's a whole network of, of Maker activities. There are more than 170 Maker spaces in this region. There are 19 professional development programs supporting Maker Ed. If that's your point of entry, that's where you find your people, your tribe. Uh, so there are lots of mini clusters and hubs in this broad network. Uh, supporting people and organizations given their own interests and um, activities. It's always important to evaluate efforts like this to ensure they're actually having the impact desired. So Tom asked Greg to explain more about how they know that what they're doing actually works, as well as how they approached their recently released 10-year impact study. We began with traditional variables because we didn't otherwise have the variables in the world. We didn't have in place millions of dollars to do the sort of longitudinal research one would wanted wanted to do. And we didn't even start off with a sense that, you know, 10 years from now we'd have this vibrant network that we have. So let me start with the discrete success stories because, for example, one can turn to the Elizabeth Ford School District in uh, as one example. Elizabeth Ford is in the old rusting part of, of the Monongahela Valley in Pittsburgh. It's in part industrial, but also suburban and rural. It's not a place you'd imagine embracing the future of learning. It's a school district that has embraced maker-centered learning as a framework. They have embraced technology-enhanced learning. They were the first public school in the country, for example, to install a small lab designed by Arizona State University. Wow. They've had extensive partnerships with MIT and Carnegie Mellon Universities, among others. It is, it's a district that's rethought spaces, rethought instructional time, rethought professional development, and as a result of that, has entirely changed its culture. What type of results have they seen? Traditional results. They've seen their math scores improve 5%, reading scores up 4%. 
the dropout rate, Tom, has gone from about 27 or 28 kids a year to now zero or one every year. They've created a, a totally engaging environment where kids clearly feel there's something relevant in their lives and they want to be there. And by traditional measures, they're achieving results. What we haven't had and still don't have, quite frankly, are um, is information about the other learning that's happening in, for example, that school district. But what I can tell you is that we've worked hard over the past couple years to secure local uh, NSF grants and grants from IMLS and others. And for example, the University of Pittsburgh has a, a major NSF grant and they're conducting research at the Elizabeth Ford School District to say, how is it that we measure the other type of learning that we know is happening here? But right now, we just haven't had the right variables or assessments or otherwise to be able to collect that in a way that tells that story. And there are other NSF and IMLS type of grants in this region that will help us get beyond the discrete data points and point to some broader network-like impact. So that's forthcoming. I think we're probably still a year or two away from some of that, but it's been... Um, it's been a long-term goal of ours to, to secure, uh, to track the type of learning that we know is now happening in this region. Yeah, the network has just lit up so many great um, districts in Metro Pittsburgh. A few minutes ago, I got a note from Justin Aglio and Montour is another district on fire. In fact, Tom, there are five districts in Allegheny County in which Pittsburgh is situated that are members, for example, of the League of Innovative Schools. There are a group of districts that are poised to become part of the Ed Leader 21 network. There are local school districts that are connected in remarkable ways like they haven't before with Harvard's Graduate School of Education and IU Bloomington. And the amount of sharing across school districts is incredible. I'd say there are probably about 67 school districts across the region that in some ways are involved in remake learning, involved oh. in the working groups, recipients of grants, um, participating deeply in organizing networks like the Personalized Learning Network, which includes 14 school districts, or the Pittsburgh Fab Network, which now includes um, more than 500 educators from more than 40 school districts. So public education is deeply involved in the Remake Le Learning Network, which was by design early on. There were folks, as we met with the MacArthur Foundation and others across the country, who, who really encouraged us to focus on the out-of-school time community. And we have. And in fact, uh, out-of-school organizations are deeply involved in remake learning. But there's been a, a wonderful blending of in and out-of-school in this network that, it, that we think is really critically important to building genuinely modern learning pathways for local kids. Do you, do you think you've started to move the needle on how parents and community members think about what good looks like? I think we have, in fact. Uh, so two years ago, we've been wrestling with this issue of parent and community engagement. And turning back to the Elizabeth Ford School District, they've done some wonderful video documentaries um, engaging and videotaping parents about learning and, and, and the changes that they're seeing. But two years ago, we launched something called Remake Learning Days. So the idea behind that was very much like the way one particular school district would host an open house. What if we hosted an open house during one week, during which these 250 plus organizations could design an event of their own choosing 
so that they would open up their technology enhanced learning lab or open up their um, their STEAM lab or where they conduct project-based learning and, and design family-based activities that would attract families, parents, and caregivers together with their kids to local schools, museums, and libraries. In that first year, uh, we had a goal that there would be 100 events. There ended up being 200 and, uh, over 250 events that were attended by 30,000 people. We repeated Remake Learning Days this past May. There were more than 350 events attended, again, by more than 30,000 people. And we've used those events as opportunities to survey parents. And so we've had, uh, we've had more than 1,500 completed parent surveys in each of the past two years, asking parents about all sorts of questions about STEAM learning, about the future of learning generally, about technology-enhanced learning, uh, about their expectations of, of learning that happens in school and out of school, and their awareness about the future of learning, their excitement about it, their embrace of it is much higher than we had anticipated. And this is true across income class and racial um, demographics, which is especially encouraging to us. It is encouraging. Uh, Greg, you, you've published the Remake Learning Playbook to make accessible to other communities some of the lessons that you, you've you learned. And Chapter 5 is a summary of those lessons learned. What, what are uh, two or three big takeaways that you'd share with other communities uh, that, that want to do something like this? Yeah, so we always, um, you know, whether it's the Charlottesville area or San Diego or whomever um, we're talking to as they endeavor to create their own Remake Learning Network is start with your strengths. You know, in Pittsburgh, STEM was already strong. And right. because arts education has been relatively strong, STEAM caught hold here, you know, more than a decade ago. The maker movement has been significantly strong because of our history of, of advanced manufacturing. So these were modern learning frameworks that got hold early on. In another community, it might be different. There might be different assets. We're lucky in this region to have had a Carnegie Mellon University right in our backyard conducting so much research about the future of learning. Uh, so I, we always say build on your strengths and, and the assets and the willingness of, of who's coming together. Two, we've, as you've probably heard me say in the course of this podcast, be really comfortable with messiness, um, with structure. You know, use the structure that invites the most number of people in, however that is. Be, be comfortable with messiness of language. Don't be dogmatic about um, language and, and uh, provided that there's a, a broader framework about the future of learning and what the overall mission is. I say that because you can imagine early on libraries embraced maker in a way that schools didn't project based learning took off in schools in a way that it maybe didn't in out of school settings, which in turn embraced digital learning. But all of these different frameworks are, you know, they're all close cousins, whether you're saying STEM, STEAM, maker, technology enhanced learning, connected learning, deeper learning, personalized learning, they're all ultimately, if done well, close cousins of one another about recognizing what is it that's engaging, relevant, and equitable for kids. And so let people use the language that they use, that fits with them, that um, supports best supports them as they embrace and tinker and experiment with the future of learning in ways that are rightly going to support kids for, um, 
for more brilliant futures. So I, I would say that those, those are a couple uh, recommendations. We um, admire um, a, a couple other family foundations in other cities that have lit up their ecosystem, Albertson and Boise, Kaufman in Kansas City, uh, Nellie May in New England. Any of those or others that that you feel like you've learned from or that you admire? Oh, I. Uh, so Nellie May is certainly a foundation to which we look often. Um, and, and Nick Donahue and, and folks there have become close colleagues and, and the ways that they have adva advanced student-centered learning. We've learned significantly from them. Uh, I would turn to the Skillman Foundation in right. Detroit. Great uh, example. In terms of their, their very community-focused and um, authentic community listening practices to structure their grant making. Uh, I'd say we have so you know, I would also look to some of the corporate foundations. Uh, I mentioned Chevron. They've been such a great partner locally, but nationally on, on matters of STEM and quite frankly, all the members of the STEM funders network in different ways. Uh, we've learned from them, uh, like the Samuel I foundation and noise out in California, uh, the blank foundation in Atlanta, yep. the way they've embraced steam and workforce development issues in a way that's responsive to Atlanta. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I'd like to think that we've stayed really curious here in thinking as we think about what is it that we can bring that would be world-class in support of children, youth, and families and their learning ambitions here in the Pittsburgh region. We've tried to stay really curious about how other foundations have approached that their work, what we're learning from, uh, whether it's reading uh, uh, JFF or EdSurge or, or Getting Smart or whatever it might be, we're learning every day and, uh, and we're trying to stay really hungry. It's in fact why we've sent Tom delegations of, of dozens of Pittsburghers to INACOL or South by Southwest EDU or, or to other national conferences because that pot stirring would be another recommendation that's really critical to keep this work fresh and mindful about where we need to go. We'll, uh, we'll see you at INACOL in Orlando in October, right? It's a few months. I won't be there, but ideally there'll be a, a large contingent of Pittsburghers there. So let's wrap up with a look forward. As you look um, forward to the, the next 10 years in Pittsburgh and remake, um, anything new for the network or uh, your hopes and dreams for what happens over the next 10 years? Yes. So I'd say two things. One, uh, we do have in place these working groups that I mentioned previously around STEM, around maker, around innovative professional development, around policy and state regulations. And, and we've got dozens of folks cross-sector coming together to think about what are our collective strategies as we think about um, these various approaches to learning and policy as we look ahead. And, and they have some big bets as we look ahead. And two, I would say, while equity has always been a focus for the work of, of remake learning, I'd say we've been much better about that work in the past three years. And the support financially and non-financially to school districts and communities uh, where we find large numbers of free and reduced student lunch populations and, and high levels of, of low SES has been really critical to the work. 
I mentioned earlier the the Mon Valley Steam uh, Consortium. So there's four school districts in in the Monongahela Valley, which again is the older Steel Valley of Pittsburgh, that are banding together. Wilkinsburg, McKeesport, Woodland Hills, commonly thinking about their professional learning activities, how they support the design of time and space to support modern learning, uh, working together in ways that they haven't before. There been, I think of school districts like the Wilkinsburg School District or the Newcastle School District to the north. These are districts that have free and reduced student lunch populations far, you know, certainly at least 90%, if not higher. And you can imagine all of the, the really troubling uh, circumstances with which they're dealing. And yet they've got courageous leadership that's embracing the future of learning because they realize that, that simultaneous to working on those foundational and fundamental things, they also have to be focusing on the future of learning and, and preparing kids for, uh, for those futures. And so finding ways to support those districts and engage in involving them uh, as they step forward in, in ways that will be hard for them. And, and that's been really important in the past few years. So I would say the, the collective strategies around uh, some of these modern learning frameworks, as well as uh, deepening and deepening and deepening our commitment to, to um, certainly every single kid in this region. Where can people uh, find out more? The website, remakelearning.org. People, can, people can find you on Twitter at, at Greg, G-R-E-G-G, Bear, G, uh, B-E-H-R. That's right. Remember, there's three Gs in Greg. That's right. <laughs> any any other place they had to look, they can find the playbook on uh, remakelearning.org. That's right. And that website will be revamped in the coming um weeks. The, the playbook is available there. If you Google Remake Learning Playbook, the 10-year impact report will Great. be forthcoming. I would say um, the Getting Smart uh, blog uh, from time to time. You yes. all are generous in, in publishing pieces that we write. Uh, and then there are so many leaders in the Remake Learning Network. You mentioned Justin Aglio at Montour. I think of someone like Megan Ciccone in, in Fox Chapel, Sean Tomaszewski in the Northgate School District, uh, Sunana Chand, our, our, re, uh, our learning innovation strategist. So I think if people dig into this, they'll find lots of people whom they'll want to follow uh, on Twitter, Facebook, and otherwise. Greg, it's been great to have you on the Getting Smart Podcast. Tom, thank you for this opportunity, and thank you for the work that you and all of your colleagues at Getting Smart do. We learn a lot from you every single day. I was, I was sincere when I said that. Thanks. Thanks to Greg Baer for speaking with us today, and to Tom for another great interview. Be sure to check out the Remake Learning Playbook, as well as the 10-Year Impact Report, which we've linked to in the show notes as well as in the blog. Also be sure to check out the Getting Smart Podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Kat, signing off.